sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. <laughs> hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. <laughs> you can get involved in the show. It's We Are The Story Guys at Gmail. Com. We are cracking each other up this evening. Tis the season. All things cheerful, joyful, nauseating. It's Christmas music season. We're guys with checkered pasts when it comes to Christmas music. We've had Duh. to. I actually told somebody the other day that I used to program a Christmas radio station, and they were like, wait, what? What was. What's a Christmas. They were really young. They're like, what's a Christmas radio station? And I was like, oh, buddy. Uh, wow. it, used, it used to make people money, you know? That's Okay, so here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about a song that I know, I happen to know, because we're best pals, that this okay. song gets played at your house at other times than the holiday season. You've told me this. You've told me that this ranks among your daughter's favorite songs, and that sometimes, like, randomly in July, the strains oh. of this song will be, will be emanating from her bedroom. Oh, man. Yeah. A modern-day classic. How often does this get jammed in your household? Um, it gets jammed in my car a lot, like, more often than not, <laughs> and not just at Christmas. It's, like, on, like, playlists that my daughter listens to Tyler, the Creator, and stuff. And this, this <laughs> into <land>. this? <laughs> yeah. Get Earthquake into All yeah. I Want for Christmas is You? Are we still friends? And oh, then, man. Yeah. But I, I do want to say that my personal favorite version of that song is, of course, how long? Did, we're like, what, five minutes in? It's the, the mashup with Motley Crue's Looks to Kill. That's my favorite version of, of that course, song. Of course. And, you know, My Chemical Romance does a version of that song. So, of course, that's the one I have to claim. Uh, I, I put that on when I was, I, was, I was putting the ornaments on the tree, and I was told to turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> that's you, you you're not doing it right until someone tells you to turn it down that's yeah. for sure that's for so sure so, so are we going to talk about mariah carey on trl or what are we talking We're, okay about? well we listen it, it, first of all i, I just want to address this idea that you and your family love this song and you play it all year long and your daughter plays it all year long and i want to like want to let her know and you know that you're not alone uh yes i i, I have compiled some feedback about this song. Raj Parisian from All Music once called this song, quote, a year-long banger. Yeah. Right? Okay. A Adam Ragusia, a writer for Slate, has called the song in writing, quote, the only Christmas song written in the last half century worthy of inclusion in the Great American Songbook. Agreed? Half century. So that's... 50 years. Is... Oh, 50 years? Yeah. I call bullshit... Okay, what else should that, be in there? The entire John Denver and the Muppets record. That should be <laughs> freaking gold and platinum. That is amazing. Fair enough. I'm not, I'm oh not here God. to argue that. that oh. I did not come prepared to, oh, to counter-program against that argument. It's so good. When they're, when they're doing the, the 12 days of Christmas and someone says piggy pudding instead of figgy pudding, and yep, Miss Piggy's yep, like, yep. what? Yeah. Well, I just saw it. I saw some meme or something floating around that it's 30 years ago this week that the Muppet Christmas Carol was released. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and so, you know, that's probably 20 years on from from the John Denver record you're referring to. But that also for a certain generation of people is a stone cold classic. And I do remember going to the movie theater to see that as a as a young nine year old boy. 
Uh, Now, I'll say I've already read some great music critics who have agreed with you and your daughter and your family's appreciation of this song. I will also say my wife. This will be my last argument. My wife loves this song. Did you know it holds the Guinness World Record for the highest charting holiday song by a solo artist on the Billboard Hot 100? No, I didn't know that. So was was Bing Crosby wait before yeah those things predate that i did not go back and look but i that is the caveat to that stat i think but do you want to know something else about this song that i find really special that i don't think a lot of people know yeah do you know do you know who wrote it burt beckerack mariah oh my gosh she's okay so listen rich is a freak (laughs) oh my gosh listen to this so if, I'm just going to bring people up to speed. I know you know this, but just in case you're listening to the show and you don't know about song credits and how they work, like songwriting credits, let's just say that's how you get paid. And that's Murdoch's reaction. If, especially yeah. if, you're, if your song is a perennial smash that's getting played all the time. All the time and not just the holidays. She could pay for all of Nick Cannon's kids to go to college. <laughs> they only have one, they only have a pair. It's just the twins. Uh, so yeah, but he's yeah, but he's got eighteen more kids, Brian. <laughs> I don't even keep it up. <laughs> I'm not Ben. I did not know that Nick Cannon had a lot of kids. That's news yeah. to me. Um, okay, so here's what's interesting to me about this, and I know you'll you understand this. Women in pop music before this time, not stereotypically writing their own songs. So let me illustrate. Opposites Attract by Paula Abdul. Not written by Paula Abdul. Huh. Borderline okay. by Madonna. Not yeah. written by Madge. What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner. Oh, yeah. Not written by Tina Turner. Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Not written oh, by Whitney I Houston. No songwriting credit. I love that song. Now, of course, everyone does. They, they sing. They get performance credit. They do not get the songwriting credit. So who wrote the song the question is professional songwriters quote unquote the singer's the executor in this version of the system but not always the creator if you've ever watched the grammys and tried to figure out what the difference is i remember this confusing me as a kid between record of the year and song of the year song oh, of yeah. song of the year is a songwriting award so when for instance when what's love got to do with it which we already mentioned won record and song of the year in 85 that means that tina took home the actual trophy for record of the year. Right. But song of the year, that trophy went home with two dudes. I don't know how they, if they if they just traded it back and forth between their houses, or I don't know if you each get a trophy. I don't know how that works. But Terry Britton and Graham Lyle, those guys got the song of the year trophy. Tina got the record of the year trophy. Now, as the 90s progressed, this changes. Female pop singers writing their own songs becomes way more common, partly because you, you lurch into singer-songwriter aesthetic as a product, right? So you get Sheryl Crow... You get a Landis sure. set. Even in the pop lane, you get Beyonce, who will go on to write a lot of her songs. She wrote Destiny's, Destiny's Child tracks, believe it or not. And the Spice Girls actually get writing credit on Wannabe. Uh-uh. They do. That's really a thing? That's a thing. But you know, the, the, the first person I started just looking up to see, oh, it's got to be Olivia Newton-John. It's like, no, nah, man. She didn't write no, any of her, none, her none big of hits did. at all. So I she, went diving on this. I went diving on this. And you you do find occasional exceptions. But for the most part, female songwriters before Mariah, or female singers before Mariah, a lot of them, unless they were specifically like the women in Fleetwood Mac, they weren't getting songwriting credits. Pat, Pat Benatar shared things with her husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her and they both And they both got inducted in Rock yeah. Rock and Hall of Fame. And for a Good while, she, he wasn't going to get inducted, and she had to lobby for that. I know, it's crazy. Well, I remember when they would tour together and everyone was like, who's Neil Gerardo? Who's Neil Gerardo? Did, did you yeah. know, uh, a nice reminder, we once had 
Neil Gerardo on the show. Remember that? Not this show. We, yeah, we did. One of our I old know. podcasts, Ice Cream Headache. Back in the day, we had Neil on. That was fun. Um, okay, so Mariah is a songwriting force. And here's a stat that blew my mind. So she has 19 number one hits. She has co-writing credits on all but one of those. 18 out of 19 number wow. one hits. Mariah Carey has songwriting credits. And she holds the record for spending the most number of weeks in the number one spot as a songwriter. So not as a, and not as the singer. She holds the record for spending the most weeks on, on the Billboard charts as a songwriter. 77 weeks. And you know, good God. And you know what? No credit. I, I, she's completely, and in this case, in terms of song craft and a songwriter, I think it's easy to say that I don't think people know this. No, it's no, not no, a no, well no. known thing. And, though, and so then because of that, she is radic because of this fact that I'm now getting all this stuff from you, she's radically underrated. Because she's thought to be a, a a pop artist that is an empty pop artist that had a meltdown on TRL and she had that terrible movie and right. and uh, what and it's like uh, well if you can write that many number one hits I mean that's it's unbelievable that's, yeah it's unbelievable yeah. now he she doesn't do it in a vacuum though right and and this is not uncommon I don't want to take anything away from her because what you just said is all very true but typically songwriters are not doing their things all by themselves, right? So even when you have a pop artist, they bring in some folks to sort of rub, to, to work up the edges and that sort of thing. And so if you start combing through the credits on her records, especially during the first five to 10 years when the hits are really pouring out, which that's another interesting fact I didn't know about her. Like all her hits, the big hits all come within like the first five to seven years. And then she's and, continued and, to have a career for like 30 years after that. But the big stuff all happens between like 88, 89 and 94. 495. And you know what? Now that you mention that, like I, I'd like to say that I've I've underestimated her as an artist because she was a person that I easily sort of put her connection with Tommy Matola, who is like the the guy that ran right, Sony, right, right? Right. That they that they were they were an item. So it was like, oh, okay, well, it makes sense. The guy that runs the label. So um, and she's got number one hits and like you know, it's it's we're going to talk, like talk all yeah, about like, that. We're going to talk all about that. It's like Shania Twain and Mutt Lang, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great point. But before you get to the Tommy thing, if you look just and comb through credits, you you find a couple of names pre Tommy, and and they're Ben Margulies and Walter Afanasiev. Now, Ben only partners with her on Vision of Love, which is her debut record. He is the guy who discovers her in the eighties. She's in high school, and he's in his mid twenties. And yeah. they write and record stuff in his dad's studio slash wood shop. Everything you read about this is his dad had a wood shop and they built a recording studio in the back of the wood shop. It, there's a long, complicated story about how they get a record deal. She does meet Tommy Matola at a party and impress him. And that Tommy does enter the picture around this time. But <laughs> the deal they sign together gives Ben this really big stake in her output for the next several years. And he makes have, a ton of money off of her music that he doesn't help create. I have the giggles. <laughs> what about Tommy meeting Mariah? No, before that, that she's in high school and she's hanging out with this dude as a studio. And there's a wood shop, <laughs> and all I can imagine is that they they go and cut his like cut a track, and they decide to take a break. And he goes, "How about we go over to the wood saw and make 
horse head bookends. So I'm just imagining <laughs> what downtime is like with an 18 year old teenager, not an adult, that has a wood shop and there's a studio. And I was like, oh yeah, horse head bookends. Yeah. That's the easy thing to do. You just you just carve that with a pencil and put the wood saw and. So they they sign a deal together. And it gives Ben this really big stake in her output for the next several years. And he ends up making a ton of money off of her even when he's not working with her. Like, he gets this weird deal. And you can go find this outlined on the internet. And there's videos that are in the show notes uh, where this is explained and stuff. But they somehow ink something where he gets a stake of her future output, even though he will quit working with her. So he makes a ton of money off Mariah. They end up not working together after Vision of Love, partly maybe because of this. He'll go on and have a long career working as a producer and a songwriter. Never super high profile again, though. He's mostly behind the scenes from this point on. And now his biggest success is he owns a recording studio, which he opened, and that has decent business from folks like Katy Perry and stuff will record at his place. But... Where we want to focus today is not on Ben. We want to focus on that second name, which is a name until I started digging into this I had never heard before. And I'm it's, familiar, but I don't know who he is. Okay. Mariah's other early main writing partnership, Walter Afanasiev. Now, yeah. Walter's a Russian-Chinese guy born in Brazil. Starts his, yeah, starts his musical career as a jazz musician in the 80s. And he starts this band with a guy named Narada Michael Walden. And that guy is a pretty decent producer. And so he's like getting gigs and then including Walter in the gigs. And so one of the gigs that he will end up giving Walter is playing keyboards on the 1985 album for a brand new singer named Whitney Houston. (laughs) The debut record. Yeah, buddy. That's so Walter Afanasiev is playing keyboards. He's a really good keyboard player and programmer and musician. Oh, Oh my God! I I can hear the keys now. Yeah, that's him. And there's all, a, all at once. There's an interview oh. in the show notes where Walter explains exactly how this all ends up happening with Mariah. But the nutshell is basically that he and Walden, this guy he was in a band with, get work with Tommy Matola at Columbia Sony when he's running everything, and they're putting together this debut for this new singer, Mariah Carey. And during that process, Tommy notices Walter doing a ton of the work, and he basically encourages Walter to go out on his own as a producer. And then he hires them. And so Mariah and Walter start writing and creating together. Oh, I see. So Dude, I played all at once off the that debut record the other the like a couple weeks ago so loud in the house. It caused my spouse to walk into the <laughs> dining room and ask me what I was doing. <laughs> Listening to all at once. I finally took a moment and I realized that you're not coming back. And it's like such a sad song to be listening to you just look at her uh, you're like damn it i'm sad <laughs> is this not telling you anything <laughs> it's such a great record anyway so so he gets hired yeah he produces and so then they start working again yeah. so Super he, in- here's here's what interesting. they here's what they say about each other early right there's a video segment of mariah's 1993 thanksgiving special mariah will describe working with afanasiev saying quote i like to sing him the harmonies and the things I'm hearing, and then he's able to just play them, right? So that's a great partnership. Mm, Walter yeah. Walter says, quote, sooner or later, we're just writing a song. It's pretty profound being the meaning that her songs have. There's so much force behind them. That's a weird, dumb quote from Walter. Uh, all in all, this partnership will produce, get ready for this, more than 25 songs together. 
Uh, let me hit you with the most recognizable titles. Uh, okay. Hero. That's the big one. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on. Wait, have we talked about the effect that Music Box, the Mariah Carey record, had on me as a child? Has this come up before? So no, I, I it have- hasn't. Because it had no effect on me, Brian. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what the hell this song is. So you don't know Hero? Ahead. Hero was a giant AC hit. I know you played it on the radio. I so, can be your hero, baby. I played no. that one. Oh, yeah. I, didn't I play played that this one, one too. I played that one too. Okay, so, uh, yeah. So, my, I have an older sister. We've talked again that she had terrible musical taste and basically taught me about <laughs> Celine Dion, Chicago, Brian Adams, and Mariah Carey, and, and the Bodyguard soundtrack. And the... <laughs> uh, the Mariah Carey music box was probably the most impact she had on me, though. That or Chicago, you're the inspiration because she put it all on like one cassette tape and just played it I, over and over and over and over, and she played it on I a loop. She, I hope she listens. I just wanted to tell her that I don't know her that well, but I do love her for bringing <laughs> Peter Cetera into your life because you're a hard habit to break. Oh Brian. my god, that that era of Chicago, I, I wouldn't say it's underrated, but it still rips. That's all I'm saying. Um, okay, so. I remember the cassette tape being in the house. I remember taking it and putting it in my Walkman while I did the dishes. Like, this was profound. So I listened to a lot of... That record had Dream Lover. It had Hero. Uh, it had the Badfinger cover uh, without you. Oh. Yeah. She does the... Really? Yeah. I can't live. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that song recently. Recently, in the last few yeah. Months on the show. Okay. Oh, I didn't know she did that. Yeah. Is it cool? Uh, yeah, it's great. Is it, and... The, is it better than Harry Nielsen? Is it better it's, than Badfinger? It's Finger? the version I know. The you know, as we talked about on the show, the Badfinger version sounds funny because we're also used to the slower versions, and it's the like Harry Nielsen. Yeah. yeah, it's got a jangly acoustic guitar in it and stuff. But no, it's great. I mean, it's it's great. It's Mariah. So Mariah does Hero One Sweet Day, which is the huge, huge. This was another big moment in my upbringing. Uh, it was the duet she did with Boys to Men. And so she wrote that with Walter Afanasieff, which was another giant hit. That was like 95. Butterfly, which comes after all that stuff. That was a big hit. And yep. of course, All I Want for Christmas is You. So and, and so I just named four. There's 21 other songs they write together that make up her back catalog. But those are huge ones. And you just think you were making jokes about royalties. Just think about the royalties of those songs alone. So here's how wow. Walter's... Walter actually in an interview described his memory of writing... All I Want for Christmas is You with Mariah Carey, which I think is interesting for the purposes of this episode. He says that between her second and third albums, which would be before Music Box, she says she wants to do a Christmas album. And this was back in the early... And I read things that said Tommy told her to do a Christmas album. So I've read it both ways. Back in the early 90s, it wasn't very common for an artist to record a Christmas album this early in their career. They would normally wait a lot later, right? So... Summer of 94, because Christmas albums have to be recorded when it's not Christmas. Uh, Mariah and Tommy Mottola rent a beautiful house in Westchester or the Hamptons, according to uh, Walter. He can't remember which. Walter flies out to start working on this album, and they decide they want to do mostly traditional stuff. So that album, if you have MC or Mariah Carey, Merry Christmas, um, you, you remember. It's a lot of carols and stuff but then they decide they're going to do three originals and one is very classic feeling it's called jesus born on this day they write that together one is a love song called miss you most at christmas time 
But then they come to this last one, and they know they want to do something fun and up-tempo, so they start playing around with this like classic 1950s, 1960s rock and roll piano concept. And it it sounds like it's from another era. Oh, for sure. So this is a quote from Walter. Quote, the reason we did this rock and roll idea was because of the songs that you hear for a Christmas album have that old school Phil Spector vibe. Uh, it's either like Phil Spector or it's like Joy to the World. And so this song, we wanted to go towards the rock and roll style. I was, this is continuing a quote from him. I was sitting at the piano. I started playing this boogie woogie and Mariah picked up on what I was playing with my left hand, which was the melody from the bass line. And she goes, oh, "Oh, that's cute. So she starts singing that melody, which becomes the opening line. I don't want a lot for Christmas. So that's, you know, that's that's a classic bass walk. I was I was visually imagining her in a room with a guy and her walking up and playing the the keys on the bottom like imagine yeah. her playing the keys with somebody else cuz for me there's magic in that when anyone when anyone does that and there's two people Oh, it's it's the moment in the biopic. It's the moment in the biopic. Like if they ever do a Mariah Carey biopic, I want this scene in there, right? Where she comes in, she's got a glass of wine, she's fooling around on the back end of the piano. All I want for Christmas. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So then he goes on to describe, I won't read this, but he goes on to describe like how they build the chords. And he's like, and then I tried a minor chord and then I did this and blah, 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 blah. And eventually... Quote, we got the music pretty much done, and then Mariah would write the lyrics. I flew back to California. She'd call and ask for feedback on certain things, and lo and behold, it all came out, and we had a finished song. And that recording we hear every Christmas, and at Murdoch's house, even in July, all oh, of the... No, in, in Murdoch's car. In Murdoch's car. <laughs> all every, of, all seasons. So you mentioned the keys on the Whitney Houston record and how memorable those are. I'm here to tell you that everything but the vocal performance on All I Want for Christmas is You is played by Walter. Oh. So wow. 25 plus songs, including the biggest modern Christmas song of all time. And then all of a sudden, near the end of the 90s, Walter and Mariah never worked together again. What happened? Quote, we had a falling out. That is Walter. He's talking just this is in the last few years. Someone asked him what the hell happened. Quote, I would have hoped that in 20 years she would have knocked on my door, but she hasn't. It doesn't sound so official from Ryzen. There's a German interview in 2006 where she's asked if she has plans to work with him again. And she says, quote, nah, because, quote, hadn't seen him in a while. But there are more subtle digs that betray the tension. There's this book that I've just got to say, I've not read it. But I have read a lot about it in the last week, and it is her 2017 memoir, which I do think I'm probably going to read at some point, called The Meaning of Mariah. Yeah. So I've, I clearly have not read this either, uh, but I have seen this thing and often wondered what was in, in between the covers. It's amazing. Let me also point to the show notes to say that there are some YouTube videos in the show notes. There is a YouTube channel called Hey Lamb, L-A-M-B. A lamb is the name for a Mariah Carey diehard. And there are full YouTube channels dedicated to discussing Mariah Carey, um, discussing things out of this memoir. They're hosted by this guy uh, who will sometimes bring his friends together. They did a book club episode, which I think I have linked in the show notes, where they talk about the meaning of Mariah. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, So I highly recommend if you just want to lose yourself uh, to go check out some of this stuff that's on YouTube and and just watch people who get passionate about Mariah because it is inspiring. But in this book, 
She doesn't straight up deny the presence of Walter when it comes to All I Want for Christmas is You, but she severely downplays it. Uh, yeah. And she says she composed most of All I Want for Christmas is You on, quote, a cheap little Casio keyboard. Yeah. And stinks. Now, that's a very different story than what I just read from Walter, detailing a day of sitting around the piano. But I would say that those stories don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. Like, I saw places in the research where there was a little more give on how much of this song Mariah already had in her brain before the Mm -hmm. collaboration. And that idea, you know, that Walter helped iron it out makes sense, but she might have already had pieces put together on her trashy Casio or whatever. Or maybe she used that Casio when she got home to write the lyrics because she's, you know, he does say she goes home and writes the lyrics. Who knows? And if she's co co written or written nineteen number one hits, um, you kind of have to give her a little bit of the benefit of the doubt on whether the song, like part of the song, was in her head already. Right. Sure. Versus versus what he's saying, because you know, in the main scheme of things, like he's he's a nobody compared to someone that is a cultural icon. <laughs> Right. I mean, people people don't know. I mean, you can't hardly pronounce his last name, let alone know it. Right. But not mentioning Walter at all is conspicuous, if nothing else. I would. I think that's a fair statement. So, I mean, he created music with Mariah from 90. I mean, some date it even farther back than that. Somewhere between 88 and 90 to like 98. He co-produces, co-writes, even plays all the music on a lot of these songs. Uh, wow. Even even songs he doesn't have, and I didn't even mention this. Even songs he doesn't have co-writing credit on, like the amazing so, Dream Lover, one of the greatest greatest pop songs of all time. He helped he produce plays, that. He has production on it. Okay, so he's touched things that he didn't even write. Oh, for sure. So why did this all stop, and why did she stop mentioning him? Well, there's a couple of stories to explain this, and we're going to start with the one that Walter will claim the most, and that seems historically verified. And you've already hinted to it, and we have to talk about. To do that, we have to open up another can of celeb-soaked rumor and innuendo worms. Uh, we have to talk. We have to talk about Tommy Mottola. Okay, I'm ready. I mean, this is uncomfortable. I don't. I don't like this as a subject. Right. Uh, I, I'm conflicted on how much we really want to get into it, but it's important to the story to know that Mariah and Tommy, as you mentioned, were married for five years. Uh, it was not healthy. I think is an understatement. She yeah. was 23, and he was 20 years older than that. Right. And he, and he had been married. I think he was still in a marriage when they when they met. Yeah. And I'm just being uh, a jerk when I say this. But if Mutt Lang and Tommy Mottola, even at their age now, got into a fight, Mutt Lang would like bloody his face up and down, <laughs> like wherever he was, just to be like, I made ACDC at Def Leppard Records. What did you do? Dude, uh, my daughter today was in the car and, a, and an ACDC song came on and she's like, yeah. And she's like singing the riff and I know she never heard it. It was like Rock and Roll Damnation, I think is what came on. And I was like, you don't know this song. And she's like, yeah, I do. And I was like, actually, if you've ever heard ACDC before, you know the song. She's like, yeah, I know this song from Guitar Hero. And I was like, yeah, this song's not oh. on Guitar Hero. It's not on Guitar Hero. <laughs> <laughs> Guitar Hero you just you just know ACDC riffs. Uh, but yes, point taken about Mutt. So the easiest way to communicate this whole thing about Tommy and Mariah's relationship is really just to read headlines if you Google these two names together. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, Daily Mail. Mariah Carey reveals she felt like a prisoner in her controlling first marriage. Yeah, that's that's kind of the that's, thing that I've got on the top thing, of my yeah. head. It's prisoner, right? Yeah, Daily Beast. Mariah Carey, Tommy Mottola threatened me with a knife when it was clear I was leaving him. Uh, the Cut. Mariah Carey says she was like a, quote, child bride. And remember, I mentioned the memoir, 
2017. In it, Mariah goes into more detail. She spends actually a lot of time in the memoir talking about this relationship. She'll make allegations that Tommy monitored her every move inside her home with security cameras. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't let her leave without explicit permission. Had staff that were there to spy on her. And the whole thing with a knife. And remember how I told you Walter met Mariah? Yeah. Through, through Tommy. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Walter. The reason Mariah and I stopped working together was primarily because she and Tommy got a divorce and I was under an exclusive contract with him. Oh. So she wasn't even on the label anymore and I couldn't go and work with her because he wouldn't let me. Yeah, that's that's terrible. Now, Mariah hasn't really spoken out about this publicly that I can find, but she's not afraid to talk about Tommy and that whole mess in her songs. In particular, 1999's Rainbow has a song which fits after Walter and everybody, right? Uh, has a song on it called Petals. And here here are some snippets. I'm just going to read, dry read some snippets from Petals. Okay. I, gravi- I gravitated towards a patriarch so young, predictably. I was resigned to spend my life within a maze of misery. And, and then it hits the bridge and it gets brutal. So many I considered closest to me turned on a dime and sold me out dutifully. Although that knife was chipping away at me, they turned their eyes away and went home to go to sleep. Yikes. Oh, that's a piss-off song. So that adds up, right? Tommy claimed Walter in the divorce. I mean, to put it crudely, it's petty. Is it worth a whole episode of the show? I don't know. But, and we're going to really lean hard into the rumor and innuendo part of the show now, there is another version of this story that in a 1990s gossip rag message board kind of way exists. You already said the Daily Mail. Where are we going? I know. I know. So where where are we at? I will probably say it more than once in the rest of this. We are really going gossip raggy on this. Weekly World News. Bat Bat Boy. We're we're not quite there. (laughs) We're going to be somewhere between the Daily Mail and the the Weekly World News. So this is some... celeb gossip rag archive dumpster diving that I have done. Uh, I will also say I have spent a lot of time in the last week on Mariah Carey message boards. They are plentiful and there's a lot of things just put up there preserved from 20 to 30 years ago that are very entertaining to read. Do you know this song? That what we had was Let me just let me say I, I don't expect that you can name this song. No, uh, th- this is is this rock and roll damnation? It, uh, <laughs> I know this from Guitar Hero. Uh, this is Samantha Cole. The song is called "Without You." Do you re- do you remember the name Samantha Cole? Yeah. Well, how do I know her, Brian? Okay, so here's the deal with with Samantha Cole. There was there was a moment where this 19-year-old singer, Samantha Cole, was going to be a big deal. She grew up in Southampton, New York. She got into singing and dancing. And as a teenager, she started getting these appearances on MTV's The Grind. Tell me about your relationship with The Grind. Well, I watched it. It wasn't like an exclusive <laughs> thing. But I also I also watched um, Singled Out, too. 
So, but I did watch. I did watch so the grind. She was on the grind thirty times. One time she got to perform. The rest of the time she just got to dance or whatever. I guess whatever you did on the grind. Uh, oh man! Will you describe watched- it for people who don't know or remember what the grind was? Because that's a very specific period of MTV. You know, I I just remember it was like it wasn't like TRL, right? It's just like a dance, like it was like American Bandstand kind of. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't my thing, and I had already demoed out of it, but I did watch Singled Out uh, because I thought Jenny McCarthy was great before she turned into a complete moron QAnon <laughs> freak show that she is. So I come at me. I bring up the grind because it is through this show that Samantha Cole gets the attention of Doug Morris and Dan Glass from Universal Music, and she gets a record deal. There's this guy named Mark Shapiro who's made his living writing these like thin little biographies of celebrities. If you Google him, you'll see that he has done a lot of these. He did one on Mariah back in 2001, and he tells a story about Samantha Cole and her relationship with Mariah Carey. Now, I can't vouch for this guy's journalistic integrity or reputation. I just know he's written a lot of these books. But this next bit, is a combo of info from him and some gossip rag message board archive stuff. This is the story. The story is that Walter began producing this up-and-coming heir to the diva throne named Samantha Cole while he was also working with Mariah. Now, Mariah did not like the time that Walter was taking away from her sessions to go work with this other girl who was sort of in the Mariah mold. Now, I don't feel like in 22 you look back and think, Oh, she's like Mariah. But I can see how at the time Mariah would feel threatened. A little bit in the looks department, sort of how they were styling her, a little bit how the music was being styled, all of that. She must have felt that Cole was a threat to her status as the top dog in the pop world, maybe, right? But it gets worse because while he is leaving sessions to go work with Samantha Cole, he begins dating Samantha Cole. And so the story is that the tension between Mariah and Walter grows. And she begins to openly and uncharacteristically challenge his creative choices in the studio. Oh. And and then, and there's different versions of this floating around, but then it's sort of agreed that one night while working at Hit Factory, Mariah explodes, and there's this minor disagreement over the arrangement of a song, and it starts to get ugly. And Mariah and Walter end up in a screaming match at each other, in the street like it spills out of the studio they're yelling at each other one of them storms out there in the middle of the street and passerbys watch this happen wow supposedly and heard mariah say nasty stuff about samantha and walter dating samantha specifically yikes now i did not go find the quote new york times report but i do have some other sources that say according to a new york times report Mariah fires Walter on the spot in that moment. Uh, In the street. In the street. Now, there's a spokesperson for Mariah who will later say that, quote, he got mad, she got mad. It was simply a matter of Mariah not wanting the album to be overproduced. It had nothing to do with his romantic entanglements. But this was a side of Mariah that had not been seen before. And it was one that would not be forgotten. The people who see it, right? Because... Mariah up to this point doesn't fully have the diva sort of label, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of her behavior off the stage. And so from here in the late nineties, there becomes this gossip rag fodder about there being a rivalry between Mariah Carey and Samantha Cole. Wow. And, and not, and not Paula Cole. Cause that would be not Paula, not Paula Cole who arguably had a more successful career. So, 
Samantha Cole is a funny footnote now. And if you look her up, she's still putting music out. She has stuff out this year, mostly covers. She's done a lot of weird covers and stuff. Um, But at the time, this was a big deal. And if you get on these Mariah Carey message boards that I mentioned, people talked about this and still sort of talk about it. It's crazy what still lives on the internet. Let me read you some snippets. Just keep in mind, these are from Gossip Magazines, okay? Okay, I'm ready. This is from the New York Daily News in late May of 99. Should I read it in like a New York Daily News voice? Mariah Carey. It depends if you want to, Brian. Why don't you go ahead? Mariah Carey has always been cool to upstart fellow songbird Samantha Cole. But would she really pelt Cole with ice cubes? Cole tells us she was at Life, which I guess is a club, in the wee hours Friday night when she looked up to find Mariah Carey chucking ice cubes at her. One passed right by my nose, the 23-year-old Cole says. I was shocked. I've I've been in that place, Brian. (laughs) You've been in Life? Yeah. What's it like? Uh, man. <laughs> I I want to say it's the club where it may not be. No, it's not. I got it mixed up. Like I used to go to that club um, with my friend Sam, who was great because we could just walk in front of a line of 300 people and they'd be like, oh, hey, what's up, Sam? And I could we could get in. Nice. Um, in front of because he was really good looking and I like I was like his hanger on buddy. Really, kind of, <laughs> okay, you get one. You get one dude. You get one dude yeah. with you, but we can't no he, more, Sam. Well he's he's like um well he's gorgeous for Pete's sake. Um great jeans or whatever. But um no for a minute I had it mixed up with this club called Shine, which I used to go to Sam. And that was the club where I went to go see the famous Sugar Ray gig where they were getting paid 400 grand by Marlboro. <laughs> and then the band's all there except for Mark McGrath. And Mark McGrath shows up late and fucking hammered and gets on stage. The band just starts playing when he gets there because they're waiting on him. And he sticks two fingers out at the crowd and goes, who wants to smell Madonna? Oh, and, my God. You were at and, that show? And it didn't last <laughs> very long. Really? Shocking. And they, and they had to, they didn't get, they did, they, I don't know if they got that fee up front, but they didn't, they oh, didn't man. get that. I, I they will, didn't get that 400 grand. I will tell you, Mark's really changed the way he interacts with people. He He's really dropped the, the bad boy thing. The last time I saw him, I saw him a couple years ago at a derby party, uh, and I was working moving people from one location to another that were on this guest list. And, and I was, so I was excited cause he was there and I've like, you know, I was a huge sugar Ray fan. I saw sugar Ray several times when I was younger and Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls were there. It was there. And so, I mean, this, this was cool. And did you see sugar Ray when they were a metal band or did you see? No, no, I saw him. I saw him post metal band. I saw him when they were oh, pop band. 1459 them, era. Yeah. I saw them when they were a metal band at CBGB's. That's it was great. That's amazing. So yeah, what I was going to say is like Mark, McGrath when he when I talked to him like he did the thing where he like grabs your hand and he's like hey I'm Mark and I'm like hey I'm Brian and he's like hey Brian nice to meet you like he's I'm like this is far from the guy who stuck his fingers at that audience but well I'm glad he's but I, I saw him on Wendy Williams one time <laughs> Like, I, what, I can't even believe what's even happening here. I'm totally fantastic. I'm going to put everything I'm going to do with the whole thing. And he was like, jeez, dude. Like, <laughs> do not do columns of blow before you go on daytime Wendy Williams because everyone listen, knows that you're on drugs. Listen, the, the Mark McGrath TV. The Mark McGrath I love the most is Rock and Roll Jeopardy Mark McGrath. 
Rock and Roll Jeopardy, Mark McGrath will always have my heart. For for the purposes of this show, for the purposes of the rock fan I I want to be and the the kind of rock fans I want to hang out with, that guy's my guy. Uh, but the, Mark McGrath, I want to hang out with is the guy that mentioned when he was writing the lyrics to Fly that he ripped them off. <laughs> where it's like, all around the world, who knows how long I've loved you. And he's like, oh, that's Beatles. Yeah. And I was like, oh. <laughs> You just ripped it off for that? I mean, he's sort of a, a trendsetter in that. I mean, now people do that all the time. They're like, yeah, I ripped this from this, and this is totally an interpolation of this, and now I'm getting paid twice because the record label owns both these songs, right? He was yeah. he was way ahead of that. Uh, anyway, I want to get back to Mariah yeah, from Mark yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's someone listening right now. It's like, why are we talking about the guy from Sugar Ray? I'm here for Mariah <laughs> Carey. I want to fly. Okay, there's a little more to this to this report from the New York Daily News. Also, according to one witness, Carey tried to get Cole booted from the VIP section by telling the club staff that Cole threw the first ice cube. <laughs> Carey's rep insists that the star didn't throw anything at Cole, but says it is possible that one of her friends did it. Carrie and Cole have been living in uh, an ice age. This writing is so good. That dates to 1997. That's when Carrie supposedly went ballistic after she caught wind that her producer at the time was dating Cole. So that's that's all in keeping with what we know. Um, Cole insists that Carrie, quote, always talks about me, end quote, and regrets that they can't be friends. Quote, she is one of the people I listened to when I was growing up. Let me just tell you something. Nobody wants to be told by the hot new singer on the street that they listened to them with their mom when they were growing up. Like, just take that out of your vocabulary, Samantha. You'll get a lot farther. Because it it automatically is... Well, it can be insulting. (laughs) It can be insulting to a female artist. it to me like I'm a (laughs) five-year-old. It can be insulting to a female artist, and then definitely could be insulting to a sensitive male artist. Oh, man. So here's some more. You want more? This appears to be from from page six. Page six. That's a reputable news source. Is it? Is it Nancy Adams? Uh, I think it is actually June ninety nine. Yeah, it's Nancy's not dead yet. It's titled "Cole versus Carrie Gets Even Weirder." Uh, the big question with Mariah Carey and rival singer Samantha Cole is who's stalking whom? Cole, who recently parted ways with Universal Records, is shopping for a new label and is taken to blabbing all over town about her feud with Carrie, a feud that Mariah says doesn't exist. Nevertheless, last weekend in the Hamptons, Cole told pals she's considered getting a restraining order against Carrie's bodyguards. Quote, she wants them kept away from her to stop bothering her, a source said. Mariah's people keep calling Samantha's house and leaving harassing messages. I don't think I believe wow. that. I don't believe by that. The, by the way, 99? Yeah. Like... I'd been on the internet, like it had happened. <laughs> I had a computer, I'd dial up internet, but I lived in New York and I would get the post and I would read page six so I could read the gossip. Oh my stuff, God, really? Totally, emba- totally embarrassing. Oh man. And it was a, you know, it was a, ra- it was a, oh you know, yeah. I remember getting it mostly in show prep when I was in radio a little bit after that in the early yeah, 2000s. Page, it would be in show yeah. prep all the time. Page, page six became show prep. Yeah. That's right. So, quote, uh, music sources say Cole and Carrie have been trading barbs ever since Cole began dating Walter Afanasiev. Uh Cole couldn't be reached, but a friend said she was probably bluffing about the restraining order. She probably just saying that for effect. Samantha wants this to go away. Uh, a pal of Carrie calls Cole, quote, a stalker. And this, this still exists on Mariah Carey message boards. Where people will be like, Samantha Cole, she's that girl that went all single white female and Mariah. Like, that's how people remember her. Oh. 
Um, here's I, I like this from page six. Daniels, who's like one of the people they're talking to, who like knew Samantha Cole or something, recalls a night in a club where they worked together. I think where she and Samantha uh, watched where Samantha Cole did a very bad imitation of Carrie's hit hero. A few years back, this also came up a couple places. Cole badgered Mariah's mom, voice coach Pat Carey, to give her singing lessons. Ah. And then one of these gross. one of these quote sources that they don't name says, quote, she said she was a descendant of Nat King Cole, even though she's white. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so that's so freaking funny and false. There's no way in hell that a person signed the Universal Records like I'm related to that King Cole. <laughs> true, look right at me. So, is there any truth to any of this? I, it all sounds sort of made up. It, it at least sounds very blown out of proportion. I will say that last thing sounds made up as fuck. <laughs> well. Walter and Mariah have both been coy and have not spoken about the falling out directly, as I mentioned. But Walter did say this to the press. This is the closest he's ever gotten to saying there was anything about the Samantha Cole rumor that was true. Quote, singers like Mariah, and then he just lumps in a bunch. Singers like Mariah, Celine, Whitney, Barbara, he says, they're all very insecure creatures. That's, like, that's a strong statement to say about a bunch of strong women. If you yeah. start working on a song with another singer, the jealousy comes out. They're very, very jealous people. I was working to put food on my table. I can't only work with Mariah. I have to work with other people. And I think this was a bit of a problem because I was working with, at the time, people like Celine and Laura Fabian. Now, Laura Fabian's name comes up in this, too. Not as much as Samantha Coles, but sometimes people point to her. I don't really remember her happening. No. Uh, but despite all of the amazing professional feats that Walter accomplished with Mariah, you know he's actually most known for his Grammy. He has a 1999 Grammy Award in the Record of the Year category for producing "My Heart Will Go On" by Celine Dion. Oh, get the hell out of here! Shut so, the front door. So he so. was moving on to working with other artists who were accomplishing bigger things than Mariah. So. Yeah, There's definitely jealousy. I definitely think the jealousy thing is real. I just don't know yeah. that she's throwing ice cubes in clubs at 23-year-olds. And also, saying an artist is insecure versus being jealous, or, or to me, they're, I guess I understand how they can be in the same ballpark, but they're not necessarily in the same ballpark. Like it, It's yeah, very yeah. different. Those are very different things. Yeah, um, yeah. It, just depending on the way that you react to to things, if you're unsure of yourself, um, you can be insecure. But if you're jealous, it's like I don't want you working that motherfucker. You know, it's like right. It's a very different thing. And of course, if you have like a, per I can imagine with her if she's got 19 number one hits with a guy, she, I mean, can you imagine like if he's like ah, I got to go work with somebody else? Like yeah, I mean, you, you might possessive, sure. You might want to you might want to have that flag, you know, on him because you want to make sure to keep keep writing the hits. Well, and you know. you know, this is sort of where it ends with him. There's a quote where, you know, to your point, she may want to keep him, but he's also irritated that she doesn't own up to their partnership more now. And he says, "quote It doesn't matter how many interviews she's done or when she's on stage, she will never say, quote Here's a song I wrote with Walter.'" 
So at the end of the day, his feelings are hurt too. It's a lot of hurt feeling stuff, and it's way in the past. And what really is the truth? I think basically it's a little bit of all of it. I think Tommy Mottola was controlling. I think Mariah was jealous. And I think she didn't like seeing him with another collaborator, which totally makes sense, as you just explained. Um, But regardless of how you cut it, Mariah wins. Because who the hell is Samantha Cole anyway? <laughs> I mean, like I said, she got some covers on the internet now. That's it. I I, I Google imaged her and was like, I don't know. Not sure. Like, yeah. I I actually thought she was someone else. When I started reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, her. And then I looked at her, I was like, oh, that's not who I thought it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we've got that settled. Uh, can we do one last Mariah Carey rabbit hole before we wrap this up? Where have all the cowboys gone? Oh, uh, we're not talking the, about Paula Cole? Uh, no, no okay. not one more Paula Cole rabbit hole. Uh, okay. What... <laughs> Take take me down to this rabbit hole. Do you, do I'm you, ready. Do you know about the Mariah Carey grunge record? Yes. And where is it? So it doesn't... She says she has the Masters. A couple yes. years ago, she says she has, she has the Masters. Yeah. She's not publicly released them. The backstory on this is really interesting. So basically, because she is such a songwriter, she was writing songs for other people in the mid-90s, and she gets this opportunity to basically write for this grunge band and they write this whole record she's based got co-writing credits or writing credits on i think pretty much all of it and the band do we know the band brian yes are they yes the band releases it um and you can find only snippets of it on youtube and there's not much out there but the band is called chick c-h-i-c-k yeah, instead of... The the album came out in 95. It's called Someone's Ugly Daughter. But she says she has recordings where she's doing the lead vocal. Oh, yeah, I know. That's what I want to hear, man. I, I would like to hear it, too, though. I did find a few snippets of this record, and it's really bad. The stuff that's out there, the chick versions of songs. Um, just I mean, the, where, she's, where she's singing? No, she's not singing, though. She does backup vocals on the actual record. So the actual record you've heard sucks. Yes. And she says, quote, I had no freedom during that time. My freedom was making that record. So this is at the height of the Tommy Matola stuff. And so she gets this outlet to go cut this record that she basically has said, like, I was trying to do Courtney Love. So yeah. that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Oh. This was uh, this back in September. There was a piece that the Today Show put up about the possibility of this getting released. So we may see this in the yeah. next year or so. Yeah, this hit the mainstream press, and that's where I I saw it. And I was I was super interested in. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? I don't I don't care who you are. We all want to hear Mariah Carey on a grunge record. This sounds like yeah. My understanding is that Mike Patton from Faith No More and Mr. Bungle has a larger octave range than than mariah carey but i bet if mike Patton was on this podcast right now he'd say he'd want to hear that freaking record too <laughs> and 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 if our and if our uh super producer super fan troy was here he'd say the same thing he knows uh, yes. how awesome mike Patton is he'd yes, want to he hear if, if mariah carey had a grunge record that was actually worth it worth he, the crap he would want to hear that he would want to hear that for sure uh if you want to hear something if you want to weigh in on the conversation if you have inside info on samantha cole getting ice cubes thrown at her please by all means let us know uh we are the story guys at gmail.com you can find us on instagram to play along it's rock and roll bedtime stories and uh what should people keep doing until next time murdoch keep keep 
playing that Mariah Carey Christmas song until your face melts. In the car, in your house, until your wife tells you to turn it down, whatever it takes. Power on. Yeah, but um, don't uh, don't get a BB gun because you'll shoot your eye out. Yeah, and keep, and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.